Thank you for joining us on this latest Proximity Health podcast. We are fortunate today to sit down and spend some quality time talking with Jason Hardway, who is the, the founder and CEO of CETA Inc., which is a small consulting firm focused on 340B issues. Welcome today, Jason. Well, thank you, Lee. Thank you for having me. So perhaps you could take a moment or two to explain to us how CETA works with your clients and particularly what kinds of services you perform for them. Yeah, certainly. So just to give you a bit of background, I started in 340B about 20 years ago and formed the first contract pharmacy administrator and spent about 13 years of my 340B career on maximizing participation in 340B. And then about seven years ago, I jokingly refer to it as turning state's evidence. I started working with the manufacturers because 340B had grown from this well-intentioned, thoughtful program for helping the safety net into the behemoth that it is today. And so started uh, CETA in order to help manufacturers understand their exposure to 340B and then mitigate their exposure. And now we are focused pretty much exclusively on helping manufacturers mitigate their duplicate discount exposure inside the 340B space. And that's about probably about 80% of our work. And then about 20% is providing just guidance for manufacturers on the complexity of the 340B program and the intricacies of their participation in it. So we act as a, a conduit of knowledge between what's the manufacturers, the covered entities, and the all the various third parties like contract pharmacies and contract pharmacy administrators that exist out there. When you're meeting with a new client, what would be the most common misconceptions about 340B that you encounter? The biggest misconception we still deal with, and it's surprising actually, is this idea that 340B is a program solely for the medically indigent or the uninsured. 340B in and of itself has no requirements around medical, medically underserved or income. Some of the grantees will have requirements about it, but the 340B program itself does not. And it is quite literally used to treat Prince the Popper and everyone in between. And so there's that misconception. It's like, well, this is a program that's specifically designed for the indigent or to provide support for the indigent, and it's not. And it's grown beyond just providing care for the medically underserved and now essentially grown into a program that is a essentially a de facto tax on the manufacturers for the safety net to help support the safety net in some fashion or another just because of the revenue potential on 340B for the covered entities. So I guess we've seen explosive growth in 340B. As you mentioned, you changed your role seven years ago. I was looking at some data earlier today from um, Aaron Vandervelder at Berkeley Research Group, and he was showing that 340B share of branded drug sales at WAC has actually grown from about 6% of total sales in 2014 to as much as 14% now in 2018. It was clear in looking at some of the other data that we've seen lately that much of this growth has really occurred in the 340B entities contracted networks. But certainly our own research with proximity has shown that the majority of the institutions have a substantial contract network, and certainly a majority of them now include some of the larger players such as CVS, Walgreens, and Acredo, you know, in their contracted networks. And that's a large part of what's really driven the growth. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, 340B is undergoing, the, obviously, the explosive growth. Everyone knows that. And, and the primary factor, like you said, is the growth of the contract pharmacy network. And 
contract pharmacies are laudable on their face, but then you start digging into it and it becomes problematic because it's, you know, it was well-intentioned. Many entities don't have the capability of operating their own pharmacies or access is an issue, but it's exploded into entities chasing insured patients in order to maximize their revenue. So there's a, a number of vendors out there that will help contract or entities set up contract pharmacy networks, and they will set up these networks in such a way as to maximize the revenue potential as well as access. And because they're incentivized to do so, they're compensated based upon the profitability of the contract pharmacy network. And and like you said, the big pharmacy players are certainly getting into it. Credo and Walgreens and Walmart, et cetera. In fact, many of them have taken on actually administering the contract pharmacy network on behalf of the kind of covered entities. So CVS just bought WellPartner a couple of years ago, which is a 340B contract pharmacy administrator. Walgreens, Walgreens has their own, et cetera. So they are seeing the revenue potential there and the margin. And in addition, they benefit from driving Medicaid business as well as non-Medicaid business. So it's a win-win for all the participants with the exception of the manufacturers. So this has been interesting in terms of the the growth of the networks and how large PBM-owned SPPs are taking a very active role in this. Can you perhaps walk us through a typical 340B contract network transaction? Yes, absolutely. The vast majority of 340B contract pharmacy transactions operate under what's called a post-adjudication platform. And and what that means is that the inventory is dispensed from non-340B inventory and then at some point later identified as 340B and then replenished with a 340B purchase. And this operates under what's called a bill-to-ship-to arrangement where the invoice for the 340B product goes to the covered entity, but the product goes to the dispensing pharmacy. So in this case, if you have the patients obviously walking into CVS or mailing this script or whatever it is they're doing, is they come in with their script for, let's just say, feel good, NDC, one, two, three, four, uh, quantity of 30. So CVS, in this example, will adjudicate up to the PBM and get authorization to dispense 30 pills of feel good, NDC, one, two, three, four, and they'll collect the copay from the patient, hand over the inventory. So now CVS is getting the payment from the PBM and they also have the co-payment from the patient. So they are up that payment um, from both of those and down 30 pills of feel good. At some point, that data is collected by the TPA. And what they do is they actually sit on the switch generally, and in some cases they get a direct feed from the pharmacy, where they will capture all the data coming across and flag the transactions that are eligible for 340B after they've been adjudicated. And they have up to a year to do this. So they will say, all right, look, patient, you know, Jane Smith had a, a prescription for feel good, NDC1234, quantity of 30. We determined that to be a 340B transaction. At that point, the pharmacy that, let's just say they collected $2,000 between the PBM and the patient, that $2,000 becomes a payable to the covered entity. Their 30 pills they dispense becomes a receivable from the covered entity because they have effectively loaned the covered entity that 30 pills. And then they have a receivable of the dispensing fee. So let's just say their dispensing fee is $200. So WellPartner is going to cut them a check for $200. At the same time, they're collecting that $2,000 that the pharmacy received from the payer and the patient. And then they will also place an order for the inventory with the wholesaler, the associated wholesaler, for a bottle of feel good NEC 1234-20-30. Then WellPartner will take their processing fee, whatever that may be, out of that they pulled from the pharmacy and then remit the remainder back to the covered entity. 
And then at some point, the covered entity is going to get that invoice for the 30-pill bottle, and they will pay that. So let's just say, hypothetically, the cost is $500. So the ball partner is going to collect $2,000 back from CVS and write them a check for $200. So they now have a net $1,800. They'll take their fee. Let's just say it's $100. So they have a net $1,700 that they remit to the entity. And then the entity will get an invoice for the replenishment inventory of, say, $500. So they now have netted out $1,200 on that transaction. And that's where the, the money and the inventory flow goes around that. The challenge is because the pharmacy doesn't designate it as a 340B claim in the majority of cases, the payer, the PBM associated with the payer or the payer itself doesn't know it's a 340B transaction. So they're going to go ahead and invoice the manufacturer for the rebate on that dispensing event because they just view it as any other transaction and it's rebatable and from their perspective, rightfully so. So they will send an invoice to the manufacturer for a rebate. Let's just say the rebate is $400. Well, the manufacturer, because they sold it under 340B, got $500 for a product they normally would, and now they're getting a $400 rebate. So they're actually getting paid a net $100 for something that they would ordinarily sell for about $1,900 in this example. And that's that instance of duplicate discount. That's the flow of the contract pharmacy under a replenishment model, which is probably about 90 plus percent of dispensing events in a contract pharmacy setting. You talk about the amount of money that CVS and Well Partner keep. How do they calculate what their share of the take is for a 340B patient? Well, there's a variety of payment models. Generally, what we see is a flat fee for the pharmacy and then a percentage of either the total value of the script or a percentage of the spread on the part of the TPA. There's a few TPAs out there that do a flat fee for the TPA services, but they still remain the exception. So I'm not certain of the exact amounts, but I know that, say, WellPartner and Walgreens and a few others, they will calculate the difference between the paid amount and what the 340B cost is and then collect a percentage of that. And this obviously incentivizes them to maximize the revenue that the uh, entity is collecting because they have shared incentives in that case. And that amount can add up quite rapidly. So if I'm looking at CVS, for instance, then they're going to collect a dispensing fee. They're going to get a share of the 340B margin because of their status as a contracted pharmacy for the 340B entity. Then they're going to also end up getting a, a rebate for that bottle from the manufacturer through their typical commercial rebate program, correct? Correct, yes. And so, and, and 340B upends the traditional economics of pharmacy. You know, if you look at non-specialty, normally branded drugs coming out of a retail pharmacy, they're comparatively low margin. A, a typical branded drug, I believe, has something like 25 basis points in margin. So it's pretty de minimis. But in 340B, all of a sudden that flips and they become immensely profitable because they're getting paid a dispensing fee and then presumably an administration fee. And so that dispensing event suddenly is now 20 points of margin or depending upon the actual model, but it becomes an extremely profitable process for them, which is why you see all of the chains getting very assertive in their participation in the 340B space. I want to follow up on one point here. You, you talk about you know, the growth of networks and you just mentioned, for instance, that some of the chains by which we typically mean CVS, Acredo, Walgreens, and those folks are getting aggressive. How do they actually 
sell themselves to the, the 340B entities? Yeah, so there's two ways. They can sell themselves directly. So if you have a, a pharmacy chain uh, or a, even just a specialty pharmacy that is it has a direct sales force, they can sell directly to the covered entities. Or if they are partnered with the TPA, the TPA will sell the covered entities. And they're usually selling a combination of revenue and access, depending upon the particular pain points of that covered entity. So some covered entities are going to be more mission-focused, so they're going to be much more focused on access. Other covered entities are desperate for whatever revenue source they can get, especially now in this COVID situation that we're in. And so what they're selling is the ability to actually have a self-sustaining revenue source. And they, so the covered entities are very clearly spelled out and they are out there knocking on the doors. Uh, because contract pharmacy services have been around for so long and because the expansion has occurred 10 years ago, it is, from an observational perspective, it seems like it's slowly becoming a commodity business and very commodified in the sense that they are competing on access and uh, ability to maintain a large network easily and price rather than you know, some other differentiation. And so it's, it's much analogous to how PBMs became commodified, essentially, and where people were looking at them and issuing RFPs based upon price and a few other differentiating factors, as opposed to novelty in the market. So what they're really bringing to 340B entities is A, cash, and B, when you say access, do you mean access to specific narrow network drugs, or do you mean access to the PBM dispensing network? Uh, yeah, access to a large network of pharmacies. So okay. if you are, yeah, if you're covered in these dealing with, um, let's take a large community health center, for example, or a large county hospital, you're going to be dealing with a patient population that has access issues. They may not have access to a vehicle, for example, and they'll be relying on public transportation. So the ability to set up a network expands the access for those patients. If you are a more affluent hospital, you're setting up your ability to set up networks where your patients, especially your insured patients live, gives you the ability to capture that revenue. And that seems to be a, uh, a large selling point now. And they euphemistically refer to it as 340B savings because it's not pleasant to refer to it as revenue, but it's, uh, realistically, that's, that's what everyone's talking about. This is revenue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and in some case, in a couple of cases that we know of, and Senator Grassley pointed this out in a couple of his letters and it's been brought up a few times, this is the revenue in the you know $100 million range, uh, our margin, rather, in the $100 million range. That's an extraordinary revenue source for a number of these institutions. Now, obviously, they're the outliers. You know, So we do some pro bono consulting work for some of the urban safety net hospitals, and they're happy if they can close a pharmacy program out in the black. In fact, they have a party if they celebrate if they to celebrate if they close out a dollar in the black. So, if you're a manufacturer, why should you differentiate? It's it's still money out of your pocket either way, right? Right. So, 340B is is very political. Um, there's no doubt about that, and it is, it remains very political. And there's also a large amount of optics. You know, there's 435 house districts, and there's a safety net institution in all but two of them, I believe. And so, and they frequently have the largest employer in those house districts as well. So if you're a manufacturer, you have to understand the optics of what you're doing, as well as the politics associated with it. 
and be able to have those conversations. It's been my experience that most manufacturers that we deal with, for example, are very sensitive to that because it's important to be, and they would love to pretend the community health centers operate in their own bucket, independent of in all the other grantees, just operate in their own buckets. They can do whatever they're going to do because they're a fairly small percentage of 340B sales, and they're all doing exactly what they should be doing. And then when it comes to the hospitals, they're struggling what to do there because there are obviously safety net hospitals that are pretty much in every shape, way, shape, or form, a community health center, and then there are other hospitals that are not necessarily so. In addition, so, you know, the, the manufacturers dealing with 340B, they're pretty limited in what they can do. And so they have to be able to navigate that. They can't deny sales based upon their perception that the entity is uh, breaking the rules around 340B. So they're stuck in a position where they have to retroactively go in and address what they think are errors. And those fall into drugs going to patients who are not eligible for 340B under the patient definition or instances where there is a rebate, a Medicaid uh, rebate on a 340B prescription. And in our experience, Medicaid rebates on 340B prescriptions, everyone agrees that's the rule. Everyone more or less tries to solve that in a collaborative manner. But when it comes to patient definition, which is you know, very nebulous and the patient definition is very loose. In our experiences, the covered entities tend to button down in that case and not want to deal with the manufacturer because it's a, an extremely interpretatory situation. One of the primary challenges of 340B is it's incredibly underregulated. And so, so much of it is open to interpretation or subregulatory guidance from the federal government. So you described a situation where duplicate discounts are pretty straightforward. You know when you pay twice on the same prescription. We've seen states begin to carve in or carve out drugs, for instance. So they're trying to instill some discipline in terms of how they're actually collecting rebates. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting. So the states, uh, you know, some states have taken attack of carving in very specific classes of drugs or very specific disease states. And other states are doing a, you get to choose, and then a few states have gone to a complete carve-out just because duplicate discounts are so hard to prevent. You know, 340B eligibility is not known at the time of service, and essentially every mechanism until quite recently that's out there to prevent duplicate discounts relies on knowledge at the time of service. So you have a system that's guaranteed to create failure points because it's just so contrary to how pharmacy works. And that's recently changed, as we're seeing changes. Uh, us and some other groups are doing work around preventing duplicate discounts in a proactive manner. But that even so, the norm is identifying the transaction time service, which just doesn't work for the majority of contract pharmacy cases. Is duplicate discount uh, where, for instance, a manufacturer might pay a rebate to both the Medicaid agency and the eligible entity, or is that the major risk that you see out there for 340B? Well, in terms of stuff that is currently addressable with the current guidance and regulation, absolutely. You know, we estimate duplicate discounts last year range somewhere between eight and nine billion dollars, and they fall really into two categories. There's statutory duplicate discounts where they're prohibited by statute, so that's Medicaid and AIDS drug assistance programs, and then there's contractual duplicate discounts where it's prohibited by contract, and that's uh, commercial payers, Medicare, Part D, and similar programs, so non-statutorily prohibited. 
And but between them, we, you know, our back of the envelope educated guess is it was eight to nine billion dollars last year. It's a material impact on pharmacy sales as a whole. It is hard to prevent and requires cooperation of all the stakeholders in the pharma- in the 340B chain, and that's not always easy to elicit. So, what kinds of options do the manufacturers have? Um, we've seen three recent strategies emerging. For instance, we've seen you know, some very narrow networks being set up so that only a small number of small SPs have access to a drug, an oral drug. We've also seen, I think more recently, in the case of Merck, for instance, we've seen a request for more data about each transaction. Mm-hmm. And then we've also seen Lilly have refused to supply certain dosage strengths of a drug to contracted SPs although they will continue to ship those to the actual eligible entities. So are, are those the three main strategies you see out there? And uh, if so, I mean, how do you see the strengths and weaknesses for each of those? Yeah, so the, 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 the start, there's a fourth strategy, which is the most basic one. is like anything that okay. comes from a, a participating covered entity, MPI, will get excluded from rebate requests. And then the next step up is we're seeing uh, manufacturers create narrower networks. And there's, there's two ways to go about the narrower network. The one is where it's a limited distribution drug that requires additional handling or services or care pathways, whatever around it. And then also what we're seeing, is, like you said, is the limited distribution taking advantage of the fact that contract pharmacy is guidance. So what I mean by that is the contract pharmacy mechanism in and of itself is not found in any regulation. It is actually sub-regulatory guidance from HRSA. Uh, the Health Resources and Services Administration, saying this is our best interpretation. And that came out 20-something years ago. And then in 2010, that guidance was amended to allow multiple contract pharmacies. So we're seeing manufacturers now say, you know what, it's guidance. And because it's guidance, we're not necessarily obligated to follow it. They are you know, legally required to sell to the covered entity as a condition for participating in Medicaid. Uh, but the contract pharmacy piece, and this was tested by Lilly. So Lilly created the perfect test case scenario. So they took a drug, Cialis, that had no safety net use whatsoever. Uh, they kept the drug for pulmonary hypertension approved, but they sent a letter to the Office of Pharmacy Affairs, which is the department within HRSA of the overseas 340B, saying we're going to deny chargebacks and not sell 340B product to contract pharmacies just on a go-forward basis. And HRSA opined that they do not have enforcement capability over the contract pharmacy network. And so that all of a sudden, that letter, which was a brilliantly executed plan, now has opened up the floodgates so that you see programs like Merck. And on one hand, you see the more limited use of that, like Merck and uh, Sanofi and so on, where they are saying, share data with us sufficient to prevent duplicate discounts, or we're going to stop selling to your contract pharmacies. And then you see a more aggressive response, which AstraZeneca just did, where they said, we're only going to sell to either your own pharmacy or one contract pharmacy per site, but we're not going to ship to any large contract pharmacy networks anymore. It's making everyone pay attention to what's going on in the contract pharmacy setting. I think there's a there's a, a pent-up demand for a change inside the manufacturers because what we've experienced is manufacturers have spent the better part of the last decade asking for help from the covered entities on preventing duplicate discounts and not necessarily getting the help that they, I believe, rightfully could expect. 
Uh, and so when the opportunity came up to be more assertive in their uh, addressing this issue, they took it because they've spent, like you said, the better part of the last decade pleading for help with getting essentially stonewalled by the, the various organizations that represent the covered entities. And to a certain extent, it's working because now they have the uh, covered entities' attention. Everyone's paying attention to what's going on in the country, pharmacy setting. The entities are stuck in a very difficult position, and I frankly don't envy them. In terms of retaliation, could you see any of the PBMs retaliating? Recently, for instance, I think last week we saw that Express Scripts was going to take at least one BTK inhibitor off their formulary for use in CLL. Would that be another form of retaliation that manufacturers might be concerned about? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if the payers see their revenue source, which is rebates, start to be threatened, uh, they're going to absolutely look at ways to get around that. I expect to see language coming up in future contracts, specifically addressing this and coming up with some, some sort of solution. And what that solution is going to look like, I don't know but the payers are absolutely going to come back to the table. Then the payers can get their money from the manufacturer, but right now, because their contracts are still in effect, that's not necessarily the case. So what they've been doing in the states where it's legal, and there's now four states where it's currently illegal, is they will push down reimbursement on the covered entity for any transaction that's 340B. And so they'll say, well, we know you get access to 340B, so we'll pay you at WAC minus 30 or whatever the, the payment rate may be. And so we saw Caremark try that, uh, not too aggressively, but nonetheless, they tried it about a year and a half ago, and that was shut down pretty rapidly. There was a lot of hue and cry, and they backed off of it. But I think with these new efforts to address duplicate discounts, I think they're going to be more proactive about that. So it's again, it's, it's now all the people are pointing fingers at each other to solve this because no one took it seriously 10 years ago and started putting measures in place to address it. But here, too, don't we have a confusion of who the payer is? So, for instance, Express Scripts tied up with Cigna. So if Cigna is trying to respond, that potentially be taking money out of their SP network, right? Right. Or they're a 340B administrator or they purchased. The flip side of that is I, what I think could possibly happen is because of these vertically integrated channels, I think you could see vertically integrated 340B-specific health plans where they may just say, you know what, the savings associated with that is so significant and the money we can make by taking advantage of that savings is we're willing to forego rebates on these, these specific plans in exchange for accessing 340B because it pushes down the front end cost so much and so significantly. And so I would not be surprised if we saw a growth of 340B specific health plans for targeted disease data. So... We saw that with uh, Medicare Part D, the special needs plans that came out. AIDS Healthcare Foundation formed a number of special needs plans, I think five of them, with a, uh, a targeted disease state of HIV and AIDS, uh, where it was tied to their ability to access 340B. And they were able to reduce the cost of the plan significantly by their participation in 340B. So they give up all the normal formulary contracting process and they just focus on maximizing the 340B volume in rebates. Right. Um, that's what I would expect to see. I, I don't know when that would happen, but I, that would make sense. That's what I would do. But right now, we also have a situation where, for instance, a credo may get a 340B margin and then also get a volume-based rebate from a manufacturer, right? So they get paid twice right. for the same script. 
Yeah. Actually, three times they also got practically the initial WAC-based reimbursement. Yeah, exactly. And, and so what's interesting is we see manufacturers look at that and take that into account. So we know of, I know of at least one manufacturer who elected not to play hardball on rebates just because so much of their sales went through a certain network of specialty pharmacies and specialty pharmacies said, if you take this tech, we're just not going to dispense your product anymore. Uh, and that was that calculated into their decisions. You know, it's, just, it's a case by case business decision of what you're willing to tolerate in order to participate in the network. But I think the, you know, the payers writ large PBMs and the, the health plans are going to push back hard on this because it threatens a really important revenue stream for them as well. Jason, thanks very much for your insights today. To quickly review our key findings from the discussion, first of all, the 340B program will probably continue to grow with contract networks accounting for much of the growth in both volume and in total rebates. Secondly, manufacturers all need to concentrate on minimizing the risk of duplicate discounts to providers and Medicaid agencies. They may also want to consider PBM rebates for commercial scripts. Beyond steps to reduce the duplicate discounts, a few manufacturers have also taken further steps, including refusing to supply contracted pharmacies, operating under a replenishment arrangement, or demanding additional data. These last steps have stimulated a provider backlash and attracted legislative attention. On September 15th, a group of Democratic senators sent an open letter to Pharma referring to these steps as egregious and likely unlawful, showing a fine disregard for the diversion of not-for-profit margins to huge for-profit entities such as Walgreens, CVS, and Express Scripts. We can expect that these debates are going to accelerate during the fall political campaign season, and manufacturers are going to be well advised to not only stay on top of this, but also revisit the potential pricing strategies and participation in the 340B program. Thanks for your support. Please feel free to reach out to us with any questions or comments you may want to share.